Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese, and I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. In our bi-monthly podcast, we talk with philosophers about their newly published books. Today, I'll be talking with Professor Fabienne Peter about her new book, Democratic Legitimacy, which was published by Routledge. Fabienne is reader in philosophy at the University of Warwick. As a mode of social organization and a system of governance, democracy is hard to beat. In fact, right now, there are people in the world who are struggling at significant risk for democracy. But democracy is also hard to love, for democracy requires us to sometimes accept policies, laws, and decisions that we believe to be mistaken, suboptimal, imprudent, and even unjust. That is, we sometimes find ourselves on the losing side of a democratic vote, and when we lose, we must nevertheless live by the outcome that we opposed. Of course, democracy does not require us to be happy with its results, and it allows us to criticize, protest, and under certain circumstances even defy its rulings. But most of the time, we are required to accept the results of democratic decision-making, regardless of what our own individual judgments may be. Consequently, when democracy decides, even those who voted against the result are required to comply, and those who refuse to comply may be rightfully coerced into compliance. This is what we mean when we talk about the legitimacy of democratically produced collective decisions. They have a moral claim on us, even if we disagree with them, and this moral claim entitles democratic states to force compliance. What is the nature of this legitimacy? Is the simple fact that a majority voted for a particular decision sufficient to create for the minority a moral requirement to comply? What if the majority is misinformed, biased, bigoted, ignorant, deluded? Many contemporary democratic theorists have tried to explain the legitimacy of democratic outcomes by appealing to open public deliberation as a necessary precursor to voting. The idea is that democratic legitimacy derives not simply from the majority will, but from the fact that the majority will was formed under conditions under which citizens were able to consider the reasons and arguments relevant to the issue at hand. Deliberative democracy, then, introduces a reason-recognizing element into democratic politics. But we may ask whether this is a plausible conception of democracy. Perhaps it's too demanding to expect citizens to deliberate together. Fabian Peter thinks that deliberative democracy is a plausible ideal. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Fabian Peter. Hi, Bob. Hi. Today on New Books in Philosophy... We're talking to Fabienne Peter about her new book, Democratic Legitimacy, which is published by Rutledge. Um, Democratic Legitimacy is, as the title suggests, very detailed uh, and I think uh, engaging exploration of the nature of democracy and the nature of the bindingness of democratically decided uh, uh, laws and policies. Um, This is a fascinating subject and I recommend the book highly. Now, Fabienne, before we get to discussing your book uh, in particular, I'd like you to say a little bit about yourself, how you came to be interested in political philosophy and so on. Well, thank you, first of all, for your kind invitation. And um, I um, came to uh, philosophy through a lot of meandering. I grew up um, in Switzerland, which is a country, for better or worse, is very proud of its democratic tradition. So I guess I sort of have an element of that um, um, an element of my interest in, in democracy. But for a long time, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I ended up start studying economics first. I had a major in economics and a minor uh, in philosophy. But I was very disappointed with economics. It just didn't seem to satisfy, I guess, my argumentative um, uh, mind. So I actually ended up spending more time reading philosophy, in particular, um, what I did, insofar as did I studied any economics, was studying Arthur Sen's work. It took me a long time to um, realize that the reason why I was interested in Arthur Sen's work was because I was interested in philosophy, and not the uh. economics. Um, so Sen was an absolutely crucial influence in my formative 
um, years. And I was very fortunate to spend a year at Harvard University under Marcia's supervision, um, so where I could benefit from his feedback, uh, as well as uh, talking to John Rawls. And I guess after that year, I was completely sold. And the interest in deep interest in political philosophy hasn't left me since. Oh, wonderful. Um... Yeah, I, uh, I I I had known that you had uh, some interactions uh, with Rawls, and um, uh, but I was not aware of the connection to to Sen. Although now that I am thinking about this, particularly chapter two of your book, as we'll get to talk about it in a minute, that makes perfectly good sense. So let's um, uh, not jump the gun though, and let me uh, now uh, ask you particularly uh, about uh, democratic legitimacy, the book. Um, so early in the book, in fact, on page two, um, you say that the aim of the book is to, and here I'm quoting you, offer a systematic treatment of the requirements of democratic legitimacy. Now, without getting into the specifics of your own positive uh, proposals mm -hmm. just yet, we'll get to that in a minute, um, could you tell us a little bit, very generally now, about the problematic surrounding democratic legitimacy. This seems like it's uh, likely to be a, a long-standing philosophical problem. Um, what would you say are its most general contours? Yeah, it's interesting to say it is a long-standing uh, philosophical problem. Perhaps for many, it is an obvious problem for political philosophy. Um, but in recent political philosophy, I think legitimacy has tended to be a bit in the shadow of justice. And that's, to some extent, simply due to the fantastic merits of Rawls and Fenchel's book, The Theory of Justice. Right. Um, so even though it is a long-standing problem, it seemed to me, uh, when I came to philosophy, that it wasn't um, uh, understood quite as clearly as one might hope. In fact, as I'm sure you're aware, and everyone working on uh, legitimacy and related concepts in political philosophy, it's a hopelessly messy concept. Right. Um, so I think partly what I was trying to do in the book was to, to just for myself, sort out what, what, what legitimacy is, how it should be understood, and specifically, what kind of normative requirements does it impose on us. So I have a normative understanding of legitimacy as opposed to the quite familiar Weberian um, uh, conception of legitimacy, which is concerned with whether or not people believe that particular government or political institutions in general is or are legitimate. So on a broadly normative conception, legitimacy might relate to the justification of political power or the justification of political authority. Um, sometimes it's also connected to the justification of political obligation. There's a whole range of possible understandings of what legitimacy is. I think what I, I suppose, without getting into details of what I propose in the book, the focus of the book isn't so much on those debates, which are the traditional debates in political philosophy, but if we accept that Democracy is an essential part of legitimacy, that is, that the justification of political authority or of political power is in some way linked to democracy. What exactly does democracy impose on us in the name of legitimacy? That is, I think, really the question the book tries to address. Oh, I see. So, so the the way the book um, proceeds, or the argument of the book proceeds, is that it um, begins with uh, and if I'm wrong, please correct me. It begins with the idea that um, if there is political legitimacy at all, um, uh, democracy uh, realizes it and then tries to work from that premise to some conception of what democracy must be uh, as a political order or as a set of practices in order for it to make good on its claim uh, to legitimacy. Is that right? That's right. Um, good. And, yeah. Oh, please continue. Yeah. Um, and. And so do you see that as working in, I mean, it sounds to me like the book then works in a slightly different direction from um, some of the uh, uh, other and um, uh, mainstream um, mm -hmm. uh, works on this sort, which tend to try to give uh, a philosophical justification of the claim that democracy or democratically produced laws and policies can be legitimate. It seems to me like you uh, begin from that premise and then try to work in the other in the other direction. What must democracy be if that's, that's going to be the case? That's right. uh, excellent, that's excellent. Only a brief, um, basically, dismissal of what I call instrumentalist um, um, accounts of legitimacy, which treat them as relevant for legitimacy only to the extent that democracy achieves some other democracy independent value. So I dismiss those and then focus directly on democracy 
Christie as a requirement of legitimacy, but exactly as you say, I don't discuss uh, any particular justification for democracy, why democracy ought to be um, an essential part of legitimacy. I take that for granted for society like ours. Can you say a little bit more about about that particularly? Um, I uh, I'm, I'm on your side on this debate that uh, we don't need to uh, uh, start from scratch in trying to uh, answer Plato's question. You know which regime is best? Um, but could and and there are all kinds of motivations that seem to me uh, perfectly reasonable that one might have uh, uh, for resisting that uh, sort of Platonic approach. Uh, Aristotle too, you know, let's get a catalog of the regimes and see which one is uh, is best. But could you say something about your own motivations for adopting that uh, uh, that premise that democracy is already at least prima facie justified? Yeah. Um, well, the problems I have with those. It's perhaps really easiest to draw the distinction between um, democratic proceduralism and uh, democratic instrumentalism. That is, those who only uh, uh, recognize a, an instrumental value of democracy, so only if democracy realizes some um, uh, um, non-democratic value, then they are prepared to uh, accept the justification. So with regard to instrumentalism, it just seems to me, first of all, and I think you're on <laughs> with me on that one as well, yes. um, there is, um, we need to respect value pluralism. So the problem with any approach that starts with some um, um, non-democratic values, it's not quite obvious what these values are supposed to be, given that people have fundamentally different conceptions of the good. So the respect of value pluralism is, I take it, an important um, reason why, if we live insofar as um, a, democratic, a democratic regime is feasible, we ought to go for that, uh, because no other regime is, um, um, it seems to me, quite as able to respect uh, deep and the second Excellent. reason I have uh, for um, um, being drawn to the idea that democracy is, if it's feasible, um, uh, important, is um, what I call Western democracy's constructive function. So it's not only a way of sort of dealing with our value conflicts, it's also a way for learning about differences, the different circumstances in which we live. So that's the constructive function. It helps us understand our society, it helps us understand what kind of problems we might face. Uh, and that too, I think, um, is is very important value of democracy that I don't quite see how any other regime can satisfy. Right, and that helps to uh, introduce um, some of the epistemological dimensions of democracy that your own positive view uh, uh, tries to accommodate. Um, but before getting to that, l let me ask uh, now a question about um, what might seem uh, uh, to our audience uh, a very intuitive uh, alternative uh, conception uh, of democracy, one that doesn't invoke um, deliberation and uh, value pluralism and learning about others' uh, value commitments and the rest. And this is what you call in the book uh, aggregative democracy. And let me just say that it seems that um, one uh, perhaps even popular conception of democracy uh, is this what we might call the schoolyard view where uh, one person, one vote and majority rules um, – and it seems like uh, this view, which we might uh, associate with what political theorists call the aggregative, aggregative conception, seems like this has a certain intuitive pull because it doesn't involve or invoke all of the messiness about value commitments and reasons and all the things that it looks like. And we'll get to talking about this in a second, the, the alternative deliberative conception invokes. So it's got a, a, a kind of um, simplicity to it that makes it uh, very attractive, especially to people working on political theory from the political science end of things. Um, so, uh, but but your, the second chapter of your book contains uh, or features a very sustained and I think a compelling set of arguments um, against this uh, sort of straightforward popular view uh, that democracy is simply uh, each person gets a vote and then at the end of the day you add up the votes and the majority rules. Could you say something a little bit about why you think the uh, various kinds of aggregative uh, conceptions of democracy are inadequate? Yes, I'm more than happy to because in a way that's where this project started. Um, given my background in economics, my first formal training when it came to democratic thought was in social choice theory, that is the economic uh, theory of democracy. And um, I, that left me, that was one of the fears that left me with a profound sense of dissatisfaction. Right. The theory was uh, inadequate. Um, and 
well, what helped me to a degree was that in social choice theory, in fact, at the very beginning of social choice theory, is a very interesting um, result, which um, in itself seems to suggest that aggregate of democracy is deeply flawed. And that's Arrow's famous impossibility theorem. So that theorem says that any um, collective decision-making mechanism um, that is uh, non-dictatorial will fail to satisfy certain rationality conditions, or vice versa, a, a rational decision-making uh, decision mechanism, decision mechanism that produces rational results will end up being a, dicta a dictatorship. So a deeply anti-democratic right. is what is called to be the economic, or supposed to be the economic theory of democracy. So that left me wondering, so not only was there something intuitively wrong with the theory, but also it seemed to in itself suggest um, that there is no, no such thing as democratic legitimacy. Um, now, um, the, way I, so the way I think about Arrow's theorem is that it, is, uh, it specifies conditions for democratic legitimacy, but then seems to um, sort of come back on itself by suggesting that these uh, conditions cannot be simultaneously satisfied. So what's wrong with that approach to legitimacy? Well, uh, a number of things. So um, one, um, one problem I think that aggregate democracy has um, is it cannot address any questions of justice. Uh, Amartya Sen has a very nice um, uh, little example that highlights the problem. Aggregate democracy cannot distinguish between a situation where two people who already have a big share of the cake decide that they will take more cake from the person who has nothing or has very little. Um, and the situation where two people who have hardly anything decide to take a bit more from the person who has the largest share. Um, so aggregate democracy cannot be, cannot distinguish between these two different problems, and yet they seem to us that when it comes to decision-making, democratic decision-making, these are the kind of problems we uh, want to um, be able to distinguish between. We want to um, know um, it matters. Um, 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 and it makes a difference for legitimacy whether a democratic collective decides um, A, you know, and makes a decision of type A versus a decision of type B. Oh, absolutely, and right. Justice seems to be yeah, um, uh, relevant, and aggregate democracy is blind to that. It is also blind to all sorts of um, um, problems that may arise with individual preference. Like you, you described, aggregate democracy is um, the notion that we make decisions by aggregating individual preferences. But all sorts of things can be wrong with individual preferences. They may just ex express very expensive tastes. Someone just wants a lot for himself or herself, and it's not obvious that in democracy we need to respond to that demand. Or they may reflect adaptive preferences. People have settled into their misery, have accepted their thin prospects, and again, and they vote or express views based on those preferences, not obvious. Um, that we should give them equal weight than someone who has um, sort of a fair assessment of what their share is. Um, um, yeah, and, and, and so on. Like, there are all sorts of problems that can go on with preferences. People can have bad preferences, anti-social preferences. And again, it's not obvious that the democracy should respond to them. So we want to have some sense of, well, what is it that you actually want? And aggregate democracy only seems to have the sense, well, uh, one, one, not one person, but one preference, one vote, right? And right. that seems insufficient. Right, and does it seem to you? And I, 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 I got a sense of this uh, in in the second chapter of democratic legitimacy that even if it were the case that the aggregative conception could in some way respond to these very, it seems to me, formidable uh, problems of rationality, the problems of expensive tastes, the problems of uninformed tastes and preferences, even if it could somehow satisfy or, or, or respond uh, in, in some um, uh, philosophically compelling way to these these problems, it's still uh, aggregative, aggregative democracy. That is, it still gives you a very weak conception of legitimacy. That is, um, uh, when certain very important matters are at stake for a political community uh, and uh, you uh, vote your preference and your preference loses out, um, it might not be a very compelling uh, uh, answer uh, if you were to ask the question, you know, why should I go along with what the majority says? It's, very, it's not particularly compelling uh, an answer to that question for someone to say, well, we all got one vote and we just, you know, that's how the vote went, right? That it seems that that might not give a reason of the right kind, uh, uh, as it were, to regard the, the, the outcome as binding. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And the, and the, the weak um, defense that comes out of, of Arrow's framework is, well, at least it's a rational social preference. That is, we didn't make any um, mistakes of consistency. We sort of ranked the alternatives consistently. Is like you say, not very helpful here if what is ranked it, it, um, are, in fact, not good reasons for making any decisions. Well, that seems right. It doesn't seem to go very far. Right. Then now picking up on this, uh, this kind of criticism uh, about even if the aggregative view could uh, uh, satisfy some of the, uh, the rationality problems, you still have a very weak conception because uh, uh, one man, one vote and majority rule doesn't really give minority uh, voters, that is people who are on the minority position in the vote, much of a reason. Uh, so picking up on this idea of reasons, um, you favor some uh, version of an alternative view of democratic legitimacy, which is uh, uh, generally called deliberative democracy. Now, as you spell out in your book, I think in very, very nice detail, uh, there are all kinds of different views that uh, claim this title. Um, and um, uh, it's not clear, uh, at least uh, on first approach, that uh, that all of the views that call themselves deliberative um, have some core doctrine. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Um, so uh, given that there's so many different views, could you yeah. say something um, very general about what you think these views share? Is it a common philosophical doctrine? Is it just a common aversion to the aggregative view? Um, is it a common focus on reasons? So could you say something very general about deliberative democracy as an alternative way of conceiving of democratic legitimacy? Yeah, um, um, absolutely. So in the first instance, perhaps what needs to be said, very often a contrast is made between aggregative democracy as the aggregation of preferences, aggregation of individual preferences, versus deliberative democracy as a way of making decisions by consensus. That's not how I draw the distinction. So even though some conceptions of deliberative democracy um, aim at consensus and hence regard um, majority rule um, voting based on majority rule as insufficient, that doesn't quite strike me as the relevant contrast. So even in the deliberative democracy where um, um, public uh, discussion is highlighted, a consensus may still not arise, as I think um, um, we all know from public discussion, um, consensus tends to be very rare. Um, um, so some form of aggregation, some form of voting may still be uh, uh, required um, as a way of making decisions. But the key bit is that voting is not sufficient. So on a deliberative account of democracy, um, what is constitutive of um, democratic decision-making is that there is a process of public reasoning, so that's an exchange of reasons between the, the democratic subject. So it's not just reasoning per se, but it's reasoning um, um, amongst each other. I mean, it's, it's reasoning between democratic agents. So if there's an exchange of reasons between these agents and um, in, um, under conditions of um, political equality. So there's just some sense of a process of exchange of reasons um, between agents viewed as equals. Um, so the contrast with aggregative democracy is, first of all, that reasons replace preferences as the main input to democratic decision making. So it's not simply I want A or I want B, but it's the kind of reasons one has for favoring A or B, which are the main input. Um, but it's not just the reasons as such, like I said, um, and it's um, the reasons given by the agents participating, and hence there's a question of what kind of conditions are necessary that, uh, to make sure that these agents participate um, as equals. So compared to aggregate democracy, it's not just one person, one vote, um, and we have to have some uh, substantive conditions of uh, being um, economically, socially, um, etc., uh, so that one has a standing in that collective reasoning process. I see. So it um, deliberative democracy then is um, uh, more concerned with uh, the 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 reflectiveness or the, the the rationality or the reasonableness of the inputs that go into the more familiar. Uh, uh, mechanisms of democracy, voting, and parliamentary procedures, and all the rest. Is that right? Yes. So the focus is really on reasoning agents as opposed to individuals as carriers of preferences, right? But that's the main contrast um, that I want to draw. And yes, because we're not just looking at individuals as carriers of preferences, the main, put, 
main inputs are the, the kind of reasons that these agents put into the process. And is there? I know that in 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 many ways of spelling out the the deliberative democracy position, um, there is an explicit claim made about how um, part of the deliberative process uh, is 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 supposed to be aimed at informing preferences and maybe even transforming or changing them. That is that the the contrast between the deliberative view and the aggregative view is the aggregative view is interested in what we might call raw or or, or just you know given preferences. Whereas deliberativists, it seems to me, tend sometimes to invoke the idea, well, sure, we're talking about preferences, but they have to be rational or informed or driven by by reasons and not simply just whatever the voter brings to election day uh, or happens to bring to the vote, uh, uh, to the polls rather, uh, on that day. Does your view uh, uh, get into the specifics about the changing or transformation or the rational uh, revision of preferences? Um, yes, but with, um, I just want to add one qualification to what you've just said. Sure. Aggregative democracy or aggregate yeah, democracy um, can deal with you know, revised preferences. The thing is, what it doesn't see is the difference between you know, right. unexamined preferences and examined preferences. Um, one can apply a majority rule to a set of examined preferences, right? And ideally, right. in, a in a deliberative con context, that's what happens. So the problem with aggregate democracy is not just that it can only handle given preferences, it can handle any preferences, or it aims to handle any preferences, but it can't see what the difference is between right. unexamined and examined preferences. And the advantage of deliberative democracy is that it puts the emphasis on examining and, like you say, transforming preferences. It highlights why that is an important feature of democratic um, decision-making. It matters Excellent. which kind of preferences we, we aggregate in the end. Right. right. Um, now, um, while you were speaking uh, just a minute ago about the uh, the deliberative model and about the, the, the treating uh citizens as rational agents and the emphasis on rational uh, inputs into the democratic process, um, there was a lot of talk uh, about reason and about mm -hmm. reasons and reason giving. Mm -hmm. Now, um, one of the standard uh, problems uh, within um, even uh, conceptions of democracy that are not full-bloodedly deliberative but do have a place for reasons and reason giving uh, is this issue about the content of what we were calling uh, a minute ago public reason, that is yeah. reasons that can be shared or accessed or recognized by citizens as such. Mm -hmm. And I know that uh, you have a full chapter in the book, uh, Democratic mm -hmm. Legitimacy, about the concept of public reason. Yeah. Uh, now, there's a huge literature on this deriving mm -hmm. from Rawls uh, about what should count as a reason and what kinds of considerations can be reasons for you, but can't be reasons uh, uh, that count in the uh, in public deliberation. Uh, can you say a little bit about this problem and about your own approach to uh, the content question about public reason? Yes, um, it might be helpful to mention that um, um, Rawls' idea of public reason, to which you just referred, has received a lot of criticism, and I think sometimes for good reasons. Um, and I want to draw a distinction between um, Rawls' idea of public reason as understood to uh, apply to each and every decision made. So hence, that there, there's a certain, that uh, we need to impose certain constraints on the kind of reasons that people can use when they try to argue for or against a particular proposal. Um, I do not want to use that notion of public reason. I, I still use a lot of roles, but I don't use his idea of public reason in that way. He can sometimes be read as if he meant his idea of public reason to be uh, understood that way, so that, um, that we should be very lim limited in when we enter deliberation um, in terms of which reason we put forward. I think that's too, that's too limited. This view is too limited. In, when we deliberate collectively about which way to go, it will be inevitable that we will draw on all sorts of ideas of the good. That is, I think, what democracy is about. There's a fight among people about um, uh, uh, different interests, etc., and it's really crucial that these interests come to the table. I mean, I think it's an advantage of deliberative democracy that it can bring all interests and these and, and justifications for why these interests ought to be taken into account um, um, to the table. Um, so this inclusiveness of deliberative democracy, when it comes to 
um, interests and the justification of why these interests matter, I think, is a key advantage. So I wouldn't want to limit the kind of reasons that can be brought to the table too much. At the same time, clearly, there must be certain limits. If people, that's like I said, I think of a common aggregate democracy, if people simply come to the deliberative process by sort of uh, very selfishly uh, arguing for um, proposals that benefit them the most, that's probably not going to go very far. Um, so there is, um, um, uh, on the one hand, um, uh, a certain constraint that's, you know, or a certain set of constraints perhaps that need to be respected just in terms of, well, if reasoning together means certain things, one needs to address one's reasons to others and hence that means the reasons have to have a form which makes them at least potentially acceptable to others as opposed to just say, I want this or I want that. Um, so that's one sort of set of constraints related to that thing. But then in terms of Rawls' idea of public reason, how much does it leave for that idea? Well, I think that one can use the idea of public reason, Rawls' idea of public reason, um, specifically to justify the constraints um, which shape deliberative uh, process as a whole. I call this the procedural dictation of Rawls' idea of public reason. So the thought is, we need to, well, there are all sorts of possible democratic or um, processes, decision-making processes. So there needs to be a certain shared sense of what the, the, what this process is. And that's, I think, where the idea of public reason comes in. So there needs to be a certain um, well, I'd say almost uh, consensual justification, or at least a reasonably consensual um, uh, uh, view um, about what these constraints are, so that we need to sort of be able to justify to each other, uh, in terms of public reason, um, um, what an appropriately de constrained deliberative process is. But what we don't need is to uh, restrict ourselves that much that each and every decision within that process needs to be supported by only very uh, by only specific reasons that we all can share. So that's the difference between um, deliberative democracy as in as consensus overall and deliberative democracy as being a more procedural view. The process needs to be appropriately constrained and um, but there may not be consensus with regard to the justification for each and every decision made. I see. Um, so just picking up on that, um, yeah. could you say, so again, I think that the book has a quite lovely uh, uh, way of delineating and distinguishing different forms of deliberative democracy, uh, different kinds of uh, 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 deliberative democracy from the point of view of proceduralism versus concerns with substance or outcomes. Uh, and um, as I, I take it that many of our, our listeners would know there is this long-standing debate among deliberative Democrats among uh, between sort of more proceduralist versus more substantive accounts of the view, and uh, you invoke uh, some very nice distinctions I think between pure proceduralism and other kinds of uh, uh, proceduralism. Could you say a little bit about the procedure substance uh, debate within deliberative uh, democracy, and then some stuff uh, say some things about your own uh, 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 view on particularly on that issue? Yeah. Um well, the procedure substance distinction um, is one which relates to the question of, well, what is it that um, uh, democratic legitimacy requires from us? Is it sufficient that democratic decisions are made in the right way, through an appropriate procedure, or is it um, also necessary that the decisions themselves are somehow right? And so are there um, um, only procedural constraints on democratic decision-making, or, 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 or is um, democratic legitimacy um, um, a concept that combines um, considerations of procedure and substance? In other words, is it important for legitimacy that the decision isn't, isn't just the outcome of an appropriate procedure, it is important also that the decision itself um, satisfies certain procedure independent values. Right. Um, so I use this distinction um, to, um, yes, distinguish between, or to, to sort of, uh, yeah, oh, sorry, <laughs> say that again. Um, yep. So what I do in the book, and I think it's sort of the core idea of the book, um, that we can um, distinguish conceptions of democratic legitimacy, not just depending on uh, what are essential features of democracy, 
but also what kind of categories of normative requirements do we want to impose in the name of democracy. So this gets me to, a, 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 in a simple form, a two-by-two two matrix, or which can then be extended to a, a two-by-three matrix. So we have aggregative versus um, deliberative democracy when it comes to the question, what are essential features of democracy? Uh, and we have pure proceduralism versus what I call rational proceduralism when it comes to the question, what are categories of requirements that we want to impose on democratic decision-making? According to pure proceduralist um, conception, it is sufficient for a decision to be legitimate if the decision has been made in the right way. Um, so only certain procedural constraints apply. These are typically um, uh, some constraints of equality, some form of political fairness. Um, for rational proceduralist conceptions of legitimacy, that's not enough. So on those views, a democratic decision is legitimate if it is the outcome of an appropriately constrained procedure and if the decision satisfies certain additional values, certain values that I call that refer to political quality. So on rational proceduralist accounts, um, democratic legitimacy combines uh, con uh, combines conditions of both political equality and political quality. Okay, um, we can then enhance or, or add to that matrix by distinguish a further conception of democracy, not just aggregative and deliberative, but also um, um, epistemic democracy. That's, um, as you, um, of course, are aware as well, um, uh, an idea many people currently are interested in. So the idea that democracy isn't just about um, um, deciding which values matter or which practices matter, but also uh, it's also a way of um, comparing belief. Um, that's the idea of the understanding of the We can then, by adding that um, column, we get further two categories um, pure epistemic proceduralism and rational epistemic proceduralism. So that's the sort of organizing matrix for the whole of the book. And um, am I right to think that your own position is a kind of uh, deliberative democracy that is both procedural, I mean, that is, it combines procedure and substance, but also has this epistemic element as well? Is that right? Um, so can you say something about the epistemic dimension of this? Because... Um, certainly uh, our audience will uh, have the usual reaction that people have once you start talking about democracy as having some epistemic constraint, either in the the, the input part or the, or, or the output part, um, that is that uh, the, the specter of uh, anti-democratic uh, Plato and, and others looms where once one starts talking about democracy as having an epistemic dimension, People typically think of rule of experts or philosopher kings or even uh, 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 more modest proposals that still seem objectionable, like John Stuart Mill's plural voting scheme, where the the smarter people are supposed to get more votes than uh, than those who uh, didn't graduate from university. Um, so, could you say a little bit about what the epistemic dimension is, and then maybe say something about uh, why you think, as I, I take it, you do think that these sort of concerns about rule by experts uh, uh, are, are, are addressable or aren't as, uh, uh, don't, don't cut as deeply into uh, uh, your position as one might think upon first yeah. hearing it. Yeah. Well, I certainly share these, um, these reservations that you just mentioned, um, or this unease, perhaps, about any such idea that democracy um, may... Um, um, or, or that the political regime ought to aim at the truth, let's put it that way. I certainly share and uh, needs about that suggestion. Um, now, in um, what I call the standard account of um, epistemic democracy, the thought is that we should evaluate alternative democratic decision-making procedures in terms of how well they track the truth. So this is an explicit um, um, linking of democratic decision-making with um, aiming for a procedure-independently defined correct outcome. So the thought is um, different democratic decision-making procedures will um, be more or less likely to get it right. That is the standard view of epistemic democracy. That's the view many are um, uh, drawn to today. And indeed, it has received the stellar defense, I have to say, 
from uh, David Esmond in oh, yes. his book, Democratic Authority. Um, right. Even though I have a great admiration for um, his book, um, I still think he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he's wrong because I still do not believe that this idea of democracy or any political regime as a truth tracker um, will get us very far. Uh, in fact, um, I think um, 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 he, the standard notion of epistemic democracy, of democracy as a truth tracker, uh, is normatively misleading. Uh, I also think it's not necessary. We can achieve what are valid aims of those uh, going to epistemic democracy uh, in a less demanding and I think less problematic fashion. I think we can take a pure proceduralist approach which still respects epistemic value, which still respects the idea uh, that democracy can be seen as a procedure that evaluates belief as opposed to just preferences, uh, so that there is epistemic value to um, the democratic uh, process, but without that idea of a procedural independent outcome, uh, um, um, yeah, and, and has less problem. I, I don't think we need to go that far, we don't need to postulate this correct outcome um, in order to see that democracy has epistemic value. And is your are your reservations about um, these more um, heavily epistemic views, like David Eslin's, for example, uh, are they driven by a concern uh, that uh, you know once we think of uh, collective decision as aimed at some procedure independent epistemic goal, uh, then democracy is just not going to be able to deliver the goods, or do you think that there's some reason to wonder about? the very claim that um, uh, uh, democratic outcomes could be evaluable in uh, epistemic terms, true, false, more wise, less wise. I mean, what exactly, I mean, apart from just the obvious worry about, uh, um, you know, platonic philosopher kings or rule by experts, do you see any other concerns about uh, a heavier epistemic view, namely that it's uh, the democracy can't do it, or yeah. maybe no political process could do it, oh. or that maybe there's nothing to be done in the first place because these aren't the kinds of uh, entities that can be evaluated in those kinds of heavy epistemic terms. Mm -hmm. um, uh, no, yeah, in fact, I mean, I, I, I probably would uh, endorse much of what you just said, but that's not the main worry that I address in the book. Um, mm -hmm. What I um, uh, charge them with, uh, what I specifically um, bring forward against um, David Eslund's uh, epistemic account of democratic legitimacy, is that in a sense it's not epistemic enough, right? It, it overlooks an important epistemic value, um, or an, epistemic, an important way in which democracy is epistemic, and that relates to the way in which we learn from each other. Now, as you, of course, know, in fact, and know much better than me, because you specialize in the pragmatist tradition, that's also a key thought in, in that particular um, um, tradition of thinking about democracy, that uh, the democratic process is one in which we learn from each other, and indeed, um, 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 there is no, no idea of correct or good outcome independent of what, independently of one that we identify collectively through democratic decision-making procedures. Now, I very much share that intuition. So, so when, you, when you ask me whether um, 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 my worry with the standard approach to epistemic democracy is that it's sort of too epistemically loaded, no, it's in a way the opposite. It overlooks the way in which the democratic process is epistemically loaded. <laughs> um, and uh, I do take this learning procedure um, to be a very important value of democracy, or the way in which democracy contributes to learning uh, to be a very important feature of democracy, and indeed one that I think is connected to legitimacy. If um, um, a democratic process is um, um, not geared towards learning from uh, um, um, luckier towards um, us learning from each other. I think it has a problem with legitimacy. Oh, I see. So um, now that's very interesting, and and you're right. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I picked up on this in reading the book. It's glad to hear you affirm it that there was a a kind of pragmatist um, uh, set of intuitions driving uh, uh, your positive view. Uh, and the way that you put it, uh, I think, is very very helpful. That democracy also has to uh, uh, account for or, or, or accommodate or 
conceptualize the ways in which um, democracy uh, 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 is about sharing information or uh, some kind of collective uh, epistemic enterprise. Um, let me just raise sort of one, um, mm -hmm. again, just as uh, once you start talking about democracy having epistemic constraints, people start having those platonic worries. Um, let me just raise one sort of uh, 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 possible uh, concern that one might have in light of, uh, of what you just said about your positive commitments about democracy being uh, in part a collective learning exercise. Mm -hmm. um, so one might uh, worry that then democracy becomes uh, modeled uh, too closely on the uh, philosophy seminar. That is that uh, democratic communities are not just communities in which people go and they think about uh, uh, either what they want or what the public good requires or they, they do some uh, reading of newspapers or listening to uh, talk radio or whatever and then uh, go and vote. Uh, but if democracy has this interpersonal connection mm -hmm. uh, or, or component of learning about each other and learning about each other's views and reasons, um, some might say, well, I don't want to know that much about my neighbors. <laughs> right? uh, I like my privacy. I don't want to reveal that much to, uh, uh, to people, even if they happen to be uh, my democratic compatriots. Could you say a little something about how heavy uh, a commitment this is uh, uh, to uh, sort of collective uh, learning, if that's at the center of democracy? Is it, uh, does that require uh, a lot of us, or is it something that's, uh, that's, that's more minimal than it may sound? Yes, I think it is more minimal than you may sound. <laughs> Excellent. Um, <laughs> um, I can sort of give you a, a personal anecdote to undermine that I escaped Switzerland, which I consider to be a country that is very meddlesome. <laughs> it's democratic, but it's also very meddlesome. People do tend to have a lot of views about what other people are supposed to be doing. And I escaped from that to England, which is very well uh, known for its uh, emphasis on privacy. So um, I kind of prefer that. But I don't see that that is an issue um, that needs to necessarily um, 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 prejudice us for or against democracy. As a democracy, one can decide, or a, a country can decide, that um, uh, privacy is an important good. Right? They, I, I see no um, reason why um, democracy has to come with meddlesome preferences, to use the term from socialist literature. Um, so it is more minimal than it may sound because this learning, um, or um, I take this learning um, again to be, um, um, how to say, um, a, a procedural virtue. So it's not so much in terms of how much information we go out and gather in terms of um, producing certain uh, good outcomes. The idea is really that um, we can't decide what, um, say, a just um, um, the most just policy option is, or the best policy option is, without recognizing um, how people are affected by a particular decision. So it's not so much about um, um, uh, whether people should have views about each other, but it's really about, well, do we really understand the policy that we're supposed to be making a decision about? Right? And I'd say um, democracy is an important way in which we learn about what, what are we talking about? What are the policies that we're actually uh, considering? Excellent, excellent. Um, so, uh, one last one last question. We've taken up a lot of your time, and this has been uh, uh, great fun. And thank you for talking to us about uh, your book, Democratic Legitimacy. Um, so, uh, what are you working on now? What's what's the next project? Uh, where do things go from here? Well, I'm still working on legitimacy, believe it or not. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> but. The book is um, sort of concerned with the question, or, or is, is trying to show that procedural values are sufficient for democratic legitimacy, right, or for legitimacy, then. Um, pure proceduralism against this tendency of people to think that uh, rational proceduralism, the quality of decision matters, uh, I tend to argue, no, actually, you know, a pure proceduralist approach is sufficient. Um, so now I'm, what I'm now interested in the question is, well, how can I show that it is actually necessary um, so why are procedural values necessary for democratic legitimacy? Why is public justification uh, um, necessary for legitimacy? And I've now moved into um, epistemology, <laughs> more so than in the book, uh, in the sense that um, a key idea of Rawls' political liberalism is that we cannot justify um, um, 
political institutions or political decisions to each other if we argue from within particular comprehensive doctrines, as he calls it. Um, and, and I'm interested in, 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 in the question, well, why not? What's the issue here? And what I'm doing is I look at the epistemology of disagreement uh, mm. and into the question, well, what is, if there is such a thing at all, a reasonable disagreement? Is it possible that two people can each be justified to hold what turns out to be mutually incompatible beliefs? Some people in the literature argue, well, that's not possible, right? Um, there's right. only mere disagreement, there's no such thing as a reasonable disagreement. But I want to argue, that, I mean, I'm not the only one, thank God, so I'm, I'm, using, <laughs> I'm using, using the literature who argue um, that there is such a thing as a reasonable disagreement. There are explanations for why it is possible that people can hold, um, with good reasons, mutually incompatible beliefs. Um, I want to show that first of all, how to understand that possibility and then link it back to political philosophy. So I get, in a sense, a deeper understanding of, of the ideas behind political liberalism by starting from epistemology. And what I find interesting about that project is much political um, philosophy in, in recent years, post-Rawls, has tended to emphasize very much the moral component that's even associated political philosophy with moral philosophy, treated political philosophy as a branch of applied ethics. Because of the worries that I already expressed in the book and that we share about the depth of value pluralism that we encounter in our societies, that doesn't strike me um, quite satisfactory. So I want to start with some of the epistemic underpinnings of the possibility of a reasonable disability. Well, that sounds very exciting. So uh, we'll look uh, look forward uh, uh, to that next project. Um, I find uh, uh, really uh, one of the real exciting aspects of uh, con current political philosophy is this sort of overlap between uh, sort of uh, longstanding mainstream uh, concerns uh, about legitimacy, authority, uh, consent, coercion, freedom, uh, with these uh, epistemic uh, uh, concerns, and uh, I very much look forward to uh, to seeing more from you uh, along those lines. Thank you so much, Fabian, for uh, for talking to us. Uh, the book again uh, is Democratic Legitimacy, published by Routledge. Uh, thank you for your time. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Bye bye now. Bye listening to my interview with Professor Fabian Peter of the University of Warwick. We've been talking about her new book, Democratic Legitimacy, published by Routledge. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening. <laughs>